Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. This podcast is brought to you by the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you guided mobility videos. It walks you step-by-step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Try it completely free for two weeks, and if you decide to continue, you can get 10% off for life using the promo code PROJECT10. Hurry up, because the code expires October 1st. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. This podcast is timely accurate with what's going on in our province, in our country, and I'm so happy to be sitting down with an expert today to discuss some of these topics, such as covid Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Chris Labos, an epidemiologist and a cardiologist who works out of Quebec. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the first thing that I would like to address is what is a doctor of epidemiology? What is your specialty? I think most people understand the cardiology part. So epidemiology is actually not what most people think it is. So cardiology, I'm a medical doctor. I went to medical school. I specialized in cardiology. After that, I ended up doing a master's degree in epidemiology. And epidemiology is really the study of disease. So how we study disease. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be infectious diseases. There are chronic disease epidemiologists people who study how heart disease happens. They study how cancer happens. So it's really looking at populations to understand how disease spread and what factors affect that disease. But it's very much the best way to think about it is the mechanics of how we study things. So when you have a background in epidemiology, you have a much better understanding of how studies are carried out and how, why I got into it and what fascinated me about it was that it allows me and everybody else who studies epidemiology to really look at a study and decide if it's a good study or a bad study, because there's a lot of bad studies out there and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of people who say things based on some very, very flimsy and some very, very shaky evidence. How appropriate is it to have you on a podcast where we talk a little bit about COVID. <laughs> uh, well, I hope a little bit appropriate. I hope I have something meaningful to say uh, because I, I try to approach it from the medical aspect, even though I'm not an infectious disease doctor, I think all physicians have a responsibility to talk about COVID and to spread good information about COVID. And when I put on my epidemiology cap, I can at least point out some of the reasons why people have come to sometimes erroneous conclusions about things with regard to COVID, whether it be about uh, vitamin D or ivermectin or, you know, so a, a lot of, of not false information, but people have gone down some wrong paths or sort of some mm-hmm. blind alleys, not necessarily out of malice or spite, but sometimes you take some preliminary data, you draw the wrong conclusion, and then that takes you down the wrong road. And it's not always easy to realize that that's what's happened, to realize why you made or you came to the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. 100%. And being in the fitness industry, we are starting to see certain trends. I have a feeling that you know there, there's different trends with different professions of how people see this disease and that this virus and how they see best ways to treat it. 
So I have a wife who works in the education system. And in Ontario, you're looking at about a high percentile, 95 plus percentile of teachers are now vaccinated. In the fitness industry, it's a little bit different. What you're seeing is mandatory vaccines coming through in the Ontario government starting next week for anyone who wants to go into a gym. The narrative that happens a lot with fitness people is they will say things along the lines of, I'm healthy, I exercise, I work out, I have an immune system, I don't need a vaccine. What would you say to someone who, who says that? So it is true that on average, younger people who don't have pre-existing medical conditions tend not to have as severe disease. That's true. But it's also true to say that young people have died of COVID. It's also true to say that people who were previously you know, healthy, as far as anyone could tell, had very negative outcomes. And you can't really predict who's going to have a good outcome or a bad, bad outcome with 100% accuracy. Because some of it is genetic. Some people, for whatever reason, have these very robust inflammatory responses when they get sick. And that's what ends up causing a lot of, of lung damage. One of the things that keeps people in ICU for a long period of time is something called ARDS, acute respiratory uh, distress syndrome. And that's because you get infected with the virus or any other illness your body in trying to fight off the virus generates uh, an immune response, an inflammatory response, and that causes damage to the lungs. So it's your own body essentially causing that damage. And why does it happen more in some people than not? Well, there's certain predictors, but some of it is probably genetic too. And so you can't be a hundred percent certain. So you should get number one, you should get the vaccine to protect yourself because your risk, even if it is lower than somebody else's is not zero. But the other reason that you should get vaccinated too is that if it's less likely that you get sick, it's also less likely that you could spread the virus to others. So you have to do it not just to think about yourself, but to think of other people too. This is an interesting concept because we can get the vaccine to protect ourselves and protect other people. But then sometimes we hear people say, but you can still catch it and you can still pass it on. So what would be the point of, of getting the vaccine if you can still transmit it to other people? Is there any research that shows that if you have the vaccine, it transmits differently? Mm -hmm. So you can still catch it and pass it on to other people, but it's much less likely that that's going to happen, right? If you are less likely to get sick, you're less likely to pass it on to other people. Just the, you know, the, the fundamental truth of that is, 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 I think, clearer to most people. Now, the vaccine is not 100% effective because nothing's 100% effective in life. And that's why we still have to do certain things. We still have to you know, wear masks, keep a little bit of distance. And that's why you're seeing various you know, governments implement uh, vaccine passports or proof of vaccination measures to make it safer for people to go to places like bars and restaurants or gyms. Um, because if everybody in that place is fully vaccinated, it's less likely that somebody is going to have COVID and then pass it on to others. So vaccines reduce the likelihood of infection and spread. They reduce it you know, quite significantly, but they're not perfect. And so we have to remember the old adage is that we can't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Just because vaccines aren't perfect doesn't mean we throw them out the window and say, well, why bother? The mm -hmm. truth is they help. They help quite a bit. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Exactly. Right. I, yeah. It's, a seatbelt is going to drastically reduce your risk of serious injury if you're in a car crash. It's not going to reduce, it's not going to eliminate it entirely, but it's going to make a profound difference. And when you start using multiple things together, seatbelts plus airbags, plus, you know, better car design, plus improved, you know, road standards, 
all of that stuff helps. So you don't just look at things in isolation. You look at things as part of the general package. Do you know what the percentile or about what it would be, you know, to prevent catching and then prevent transmitting if someone is double vaxxed compared to someone who is not? Well, it's a hard question to answer. If you look at the original studies uh, when they were first, when the vaccines were first approved back at the end of 2020, uh, and you talk about the mRNA vaccine, so Pfizer and mRNA, when you looked at just the total number of infections, those were reduced quite significantly. And that's where you get the number of 95%. So there were 95% fewer infections in the vaccine group. Now, there's a few caveats to that number. Um, number one, you don't know about asymptomatic spreaders because they were just testing people who had symptoms. So there were possibly people who had symptoms or who got sick but didn't have symptoms. Subsequent research in hospital staff has shown that the vaccines also do reduce the risk of asymptomatic spread, but asymptomatic spread is a much harder thing to measure accurately because you would have to go around and, and swab everybody, whether they felt well or not. And that's a hard type of study to do. It, I think it's a reasonable assumption to say that if you're reducing symptomatic infection, you're probably reducing asymptomatic infection as, as well by a similar proportional margin. Um, the, 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 the other caveat thing we have to remember, though, is that the situation has changed since the, end of, uh, since the end of 2020. We now have the new variant circulating, and the vaccines are a little bit less protective against the new variants. They're not uh, worthless, as, as some people would like to claim, but the efficacy is lower. What is its efficacy against the Delta variant? You've seen different studies come up with different numbers, some saying efficacy in the 60% range, others saying in the 80% range. So it's somewhere in there and it still offers up good protection. What's the specific number? It's hard to say, but it's still good protection and it reduces the risk of, 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 of infection by a, a fairly substantial degree. And the proof of that is when you look at the news now, most of the people who are getting sick and landing in hospital, most of the people by a wide margin are actually unvaccinated, not vaccinated people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's um, very uh, prudent in a lot of the, the stuff we're seeing now is that people in the hospitals don't have the vaccine. They're the ones in the ICU. The Delta variant is a little bit more challenging for people and for the vaccine. Do you think it's possible that there could be another variant to come to be mutated? And is there, or, or, or is there more research being done to create more vaccines or a stronger vaccine in case that mutation occurs? So it's very possible that there will be uh, new variants. Viruses and infectious diseases always evolve and change and mutate. The best way to prevent that from happening is to limit the number of times the virus copies itself. The way a mutation happens is that every time the virus copies itself, it can potentially introduce an error into its uh, genetic code. And so the more a virus copies itself, the more it infects people, the greater the opportunity for that error to be introduced. So um, it's not a surprise that most of the new variants that we talk about have evolved in places where there was a lot of COVID going on at the time. If you think of the UK, of South Africa, Brazil, India. Um, so these were places that were being very, very hard hit uh, by COVID, and you saw the emergence of these new variants. So if we can limit the spread of COVID, if we can reduce the number of new cases, there will be less, well, there should be, hopefully, less variants that emerge. With respect to your question about the new vaccines, yes, this is being worked on. The companies are all working on new vaccines specifically directed against the new variants. 
you know, they're testing them. When we'll have final results on that remains to be seen. It's probably going to be by early next year, maybe, but that's a guess. Uh, but so in this whole conversation about boosters and do we need third doses, um, you know, the question becomes, do you give people a third dose now or do you wait to give them a dose specifically directed against, let's say, the Delta variant? And for now, at least in Canada, uh, where most people are not that far out from their second dose, most people suggest that unless you're in a high-risk group who's immunocompromised, the two doses that people have gotten should be adequately protective for now. And then come next year, we can see if new vaccines specifically directed against the variants are going to be helpful and necessary, but that remains to be seen. Speaking about the vaccine, Health Canada has implemented vaccines for for younger adults, I think ages 12 and above. Uh, Do you expect or do you see anything in the future where they're going to have vaccines for children below the age of 12, probably in the elementary area? And then if so, you know, would they be safe for kids? So very likely they will be. Those studies are ongoing. Um, The results are expected soon. We don't know exactly when. The people have suggested it's going to be before the end of the year. So maybe sometime this fall we'll get the results of those studies. Uh, The problem is, is that Health Canada and the FDA in the U.S. can't approve a vaccine for use unless they have data. So we are waiting for the data to, one, prove that the vaccines are effective, and two, prove that they are safe. One of the reasons why these studies are taking seemingly longer than the other studies is because Health Canada, no, I'm sorry, the FDA was actually um, worried about the risk of side effects in children, or perhaps not worried, but cautious, wanted to be cautious about the risk of side effects in children, and actually asked the companies to enroll more people into their studies, more children into their studies to actually make sure that there was no safety signal. So once those studies come out, we'll see what the data shows. I think the likely outcome is going to be that the vaccines do work, that there won't seem to be any major side effects. We've seen no hint of that yet. And then we can, there probably will be a rollout to elementary age children, you know, probably by next year, very unlikely that it would be this year, but we'll, it depends when the data is finally released. Mm-hmm. So right now we have kids all over the place. Schools now opened in, in Quebec, in Ontario. Kids are back in class right now. What are things we can do? I'm a parent. I got two little guys. Mm-hmm. What are things we can do, whether we are parents, we are guardians, whether we are educators to protect kids under the age of 12? Well, the most important thing that we can do is for the rest of us to get vaccinated. Um, If the rest of us get vaccinated, if there's less circulating COVID going around, the risk to kids is reduced. Um, You know, your kids are most likely to get COVID from, from you, right? You're most likely to catch COVID from your family members. And there's been, you know, a few studies showing the spread of COVID within, within families. Um, Now, there's other sources of exposure, obviously, but you have to remember that your kids spend a great deal of their time with, with you. And so we can't vaccinate children under 12 yet, but the rest of us can. And so I gets back to, I think, one of my earlier points, which is you get vaccinated not just to protect yourself, but to protect the people around you. So uh, vaccination is obviously the big one. Uh, the other way to make schools safer is something that has been implemented in most places, which is uh, you know wearing masks in schools. There was some reluctance about that early on, which was a little bit surprising, but I think most governments have come around to the fact that mask wearing in schools does help. 
and, you know, trying to implement, you know, physical distancing as much as possible. Now, there are practical limitations to that in schools, um, which is hard to work around given the infrastructure. But, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about older uh, uh, students, you know, when you're talking about the high school university level, that's where distance learning became uh, particularly useful because you mm-hmm. didn't have physical bodies in class. Now there's obviously an advantage to in-person learning and it becomes much harder when you're talking about younger people, but all of the fundamental things that we've talked about during the pandemic, you know, vaccinations, mask use, physical distancing, uh, making sure there's good air circulation in classrooms, all of that stuff still holds true. So it's a question of how much of that can we implement in classrooms with the unfortunate understanding that sometimes the practical realities sort of limit our ability to be a little bit less than, than ideal. 100%. Unfortunately, being in Ontario and Quebec, you can't have class outdoors come, you know, November, December, January, February. No, no, exactly. And some of the, I, I remember very early on in the pandemic, we were like, oh, we'll just open the windows. You're like, okay, well, that works from May to September, let's say. In winter, yeah. you can't just open windows for circulation. So it's forced, I think, a lot of people to look at real issues about the infrastructure of our school system and making sure we had good air quality, which is not an easy problem to fix, but it's something that, that needs to be addressed for COVID, but also long-term. I think we can all agree that we want good air quality in our schools, you know, even after COVID is, is, is ultimately over. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll even be beneficial for uh, educators who have always been pushing for smaller size classrooms anyway. Now is a yes. great time to do that. My wife's got about 30. My mother-in-law's a teacher. She's got about 30 in her room. And, yeah. and it's very unfortunate this time of year. Yeah, no, listen, you've made a, a good point. There's a lot of issues with regards to how we handle the education system um, that COVID has sort of highlighted. You know, smaller classrooms has a benefit. It's more expensive. And that's why I suspect most governments have have not been pushing in that direction. But yeah, there's benefits to a lot of the stuff we've talked about beyond COVID. You know, it's going to be better for teachers and better for students. We'll have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to reconcile ourselves with that. But I mean, I would be willing to do that. And I think most people, if you ask them honestly, you know, probably would too. So looking forward, I mean, one of the ancillary benefits of COVID too is a lot of people worked from started working from home and realized oh, I can actually do my job from home. And now I've mm-hmm. saved an hour of my day on a commute. Now I'm not burning as much gas. Um, you know, if you're somebody who cares about the environment, not commuting to work every day and not burning gas, that does a lot of good. And that saves you a lot of money. And a lot of businesses have realized, oh, now I no longer have to maintain expensive downtown office space because most of my employees can work remotely. So it's going to be interesting to see how much of our society changes because of COVID and makes us realize that there's a lot of things that we used to do that we don't have to do and that there are better ways to do stuff and that we can harness technology to work remotely and not move around as much and save time and save money. And so um, this is a very, very large, large topic, but hopefully we learn some lessons from COVID and make our, our future a little bit better and a little bit more efficient. Yeah, hundred percent. Back to that seatbelt analogy. There's a reason why we have seatbelts now. We've learned from some mistakes in the past. Exactly. I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about how the virus affects people differently. So I've had a clientele who had received COVID from a very unhealthy perspective. They were unhealthy and then they got COVID. I've had clientele who were very healthy and then they were exposed to COVID and they both reacted differently. How does the virus affect unhealthy versus healthy people? Right. So on average, the more comorbidities, the more medical 
problems you have, the more likely it is that you're going to have a hard time. So if you have a pre-existing history of heart disease, of cancer, if you're immunosuppressed for some reason, um, you're, you're likely going to have a more severe case of COVID. Age is one of the big risk factors as well. You know, if you have pre-existing lung disease, a viral infection in your lungs is going to hit you much harder than if you're otherwise healthy. But we have to remember that that's on average. There are still exceptions. There are people who are in their 80s or 90s uh, and who have gotten COVID and were fine. And there were young people in their 20s who had severe COVID and died. So you should be cautious about assuming that your youth is going to protect you from COVID because it won't necessarily. And I, I think that's one of the unfortunate misconceptions. And it's what, le what has led to some of the slow vaccine uptake amongst younger people to think that I'm young and healthy, I don't need the vaccine. That's a little bit dangerous because young people do get sick. I, I'll give you an example of um, a member of my extended family, um, uh, my mother's cousin. Anyways, their, their child, uh, their son didn't want to get the vaccine. He was a young dad. I don't remember how, how old he is. I think he's in his 30s or maybe 40s, but um, didn't want to get the vaccine. He was very much opposed to it. Didn't want his parents to get the vaccine and they didn't. He got COVID then spread and then passed it on to his parents. And then his, his mother died. And this is the type of thing that that happens. And so, you know, first of all, don't assume that you will live through COVID and survive it. But also remember that you can pass it on to people and maybe you'll know these people, but maybe you won't. Maybe you will unwittingly pass it on to people that you'll never meet again. And so you won't see the potential damage that you would have done. So, you know, don't think you're protected and realize that again, just to sort of keep hammering the point, you get vaccinated, not just to protect yourself, but to protect others as well. It's kind of sad, but it's an invisible virus, <clears throat> right? That's it. And you know, it's when you see it, when you, you see it affecting your family, you see the consequences, but a lot of times you may not, if you, you know, got COVID and didn't realize it and were on a bus and infected people who were on that bus, you'll never see what happened to them. You'll never see the consequences of your actions. So we have to be a little bit mindful of the fact that we're exerting a little bit of a, of a precautionary principle here. Um, again, much like seatbelts, right? There's many times when you drive in your car where your seatbelt didn't protect you because you didn't get into an accident. But if you did get into an accident, the seatbelt is going to be critically important. So you know, if you're young and healthy, you know, you might say like, well, you know, I'm being careful, I'm doing this and that, I don't need to get vaccinated. Yes, but there might come a situation where you do get sick and where that vaccine would have prevented you from getting sick and passing it on to others. So I think we have to be mindful of that uncertainty and really just err on the side of caution because there's very little downside to getting vaccination. Much of the things that people say about vaccines are not true. There's no microchip in them. Uh, they're not going to cause cancer. They're not going to cause sterility. That's the one that keeps coming up. So a lot of the things that people say about vaccines are just are just simply not true. I heard that uh, Bill Gates was behind, you know, uh, funding a lot of it. And then the first group that took the vaccine, um, they went out and bought new um, Apple products the next day. I so <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one. 
Yes, I know. Bill Gates, I mean, it's the, the association between this and Bill Gates is funny. I mean, he's trying to do good uh, with his charity work, and he's just, he's just the target of so many memes. I almost, feel, I almost feel bad for him. Poor guy. I'm sure he cries himself to sleep every night and wipes <laughs> the tears with his, his checks of $50,000 or something. Yeah. Um, uh, I just want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how the virus can affect pregnant people. When, or, uh, when the vaccine came out, at one point, I remember reading, wait a little bit if you're pregnant. And then like the next day, it said, no, no, no. If you're pregnant, like come and get the, the vaccine right away. If you're looking to have kids, still get the vaccine. What, what's the research say about that, about being pregnant, taking the vaccine versus not taking the vaccine? So the, the reason why pregnant women were initially told, they weren't told not to get the vaccine. But what was happening is this, is that when you do clinical trials, uh, pregnant women are rarely included in clinical trials for safety reasons. So when you're mm-hmm. designing a clinical trial, being pregnant is usually an exclusion criteria. And that is to a certain, it's understandable, but it's to a certain degree, unfortunate, because people are, are worried about side effects. Quite reasonably, pregnant women usually don't want to try new medications for obvious reasons. But the unfortunate downside of this is that when you have a new product, people ask you, was it safe in pregnancy? And the correct answer there is, well, we don't know because we never tried it on pregnant women. You can rely on animal data to some degree to give you, you know, some, some guidance. And that's what happened here. And so the initial reports or the initial uh, communications from, from government agencies was like, well, we, we haven't tested this in pregnant women. So it's unclear if it's safe or not. But when you looked at the situation, when you looked at the spread of COVID and the concerns, most people says like, listen, have a discussion with your doctor. And if, if you are pregnant and you want to get the vaccine, you, you can't. There is no reason why you can't. And subsequent to that, because a lot of pregnant women did get the vaccine, we have not observed any safety signals mm-hmm. that would suggest that there is a danger to that. So the growing consensus now is that if you are pregnant, you can get vaccinated and there shouldn't be any problem there. Um, should you get vaccinated? I think, again, the consensus is largely yes, because number one, you don't want to get COVID as a baseline. But number two, you don't want to get COVID uh, when you're pregnant, because, you know, any complication during pregnancy is not a, is not a good one, obviously. Um, does COVID increase the risk of pregnancy? The data here has been a, a bit equivocal, but there is, I think, again, a, a sort of consensus is that you want to try to avoid getting sick uh, during pregnancy with COVID, um, there was some evidence to suggest that you're more likely to end up in hospital and more likely to end up in the ICU. And I think, again, you know, better safe than sorry, better to avoid COVID. And so um, if you're considering getting pregnant in the near future, best to get vaccinated now so that you are protected and don't have uh, you know, issues to deal with in the future. I think a lot of the concern that young women had was again, these stories floating around that the vaccine could cause sterility. And there was no scientific justification to that. And that Mm -hmm. has led to sort of a conflation of ideas and people being concerned when there was no real reason to. Yeah. I think if you, if you just have a heavy cough or runny nose and you're sick as a dog, it's hard to conceive as well. Like no one wants to be part of that. (laughs) That's probably true. That's probably true. (laughs) Yeah. So working in the hospitals, I, I haven't been in a hospital in a couple of years, luckily. Um, what's it like in the hospitals? Because we see the news and you see down in the United States, you know, the ICUs are packed. They're shipping people to other hospitals and stuff. What's it like in the hospitals right now um, where you are? You're in Quebec, right? Yeah. 
So uh, the hospitalizations are starting to go up uh, in Quebec, uh, and that's a little bit uh, worrisome. Throughout the course of the pandemic, it's been, it's been hard. Uh, the hospitals have been uh, overcrowded. Uh, you know, depending, I mean, there's, you know, there were a lot of COVID patients at one point, and then with the vaccines, we started to see the numbers go down. And over the course of the summer, things were pretty light, uh, but now they're starting to go up again. Uh, it's caused a bit of a domino effect because so many elective procedures had to be canceled that now um, there's going to be a lot of playing catch up, trying to go through the backlog of cases. So that's going to be an issue. Uh, can you give, sorry, just if I, if, I, if I think of a question, I'm sure someone else does. Can you give an example of elective procedures? People going in there getting their lips done, or is this a serious procedure? Okay, so an elective procedure is something that doesn't have to happen right away. So it's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. So an emergency procedure would be, I can't let you leave the hospital. We're going to do this surgery at the next opening of the, of the, uh, of the operating room. Okay. So somebody comes in with a burst appendix, needs to have an appendectomy. All right. Um, somebody uh, has a, a um, uh, needs cardiac bypass surgery urgently. Okay. Somebody has a bleed in their brain and needs to have the, the bleed drain. So it's something that mm -hmm. needs to happen right now and it can't be scheduled. An elective procedure is something that may still be necessary, but doesn't have to happen right now. So a hip replacement, um, a knee replacement. And unfortunately, a lot of cancer surgeries got delayed because yes, you need the surgery, but it doesn't have to happen within the next 24 hours which is problematic because you want cancer surgeries to happen as quickly as possible to remove the cancer, but you were stuck in this limbo where there just weren't enough ICU beds. I know a lot of my surgical colleagues uh, were very stressed about this because they were trying to manage patients whom they wanted to operate on, but for whom they just couldn't get operating room time because it wasn't urgent, right? There was a tumor, let's say there's a, there was a tumor that they wanted to remove, but it's not as if the tumor was causing an acute obstruction of the intestine that had to be operated on within the next few hours. So <clears throat> the definition of an elective surgery is something that can be scheduled at some point in the future. And when you don't have operating room capacity, when you don't have operating room beds, when you don't have ICU beds to put people after the surgery, that's what led to a lot of these elective surgeries being canceled and being delayed. And, you know, as COVID drags on, the backlog becomes worse and worse and worse. And it's a particular problem with respect to cancer patients because it's not an, an, an emergency in the hospital sense of the word, but it does need to get done as quickly as possible. Because cancer then, you know, metastasizes and starts <clears throat> to spread throughout the body for a lot of different cases, correct? Right, exactly. If you can, if you delay a surgery too much, the concern is that the cancer could could spread, and that's something that was localized before is now no longer so. So delaying cancer surgery is not something anybody wants to do. It's just that you know, during the worst of COVID, a, a lot of that was sadly inevitable. Doctor Lavos, based on your expertise and your professional opinion, how do we beat this virus? Well, I think the main one is, is, is vaccination. Uh, if we can vaccinate uh, a large number of people, we will se severely curtail the amount of viral spread. We will limit the number of new cases every day. Um, there's some you know, discussion and debate going on. It's like, will this virus ever go away or will it stay with us forever? And, and the reality is we don't know. Um, other coronaviruses like SARS, if you remember SARS from, from 2002, that did eventually go away. Um, SARS is a little bit different than COVID for a variety of reasons. So 
it's possible. I mean, anything is possible at this point, and we don't really know. We should remember that one of the reasons why COVID is still circulating as much as it is, is because most people on the planet have not been vaccinated. We are very lucky in Canada, we have very high vaccination rates, but most people on the planet do not have access to vaccines. So if we can if we can coordinate our resources, if the international community can coordinate and, and you know, give vaccines to the countries that need them and really roll out the vaccines in a sustained and global fashion. I mean, I, I have some hope that we can, even if we don't eliminate COVID, we can severely curtail its effect on the population and that we will go back to normal at some point in the very near future. Now, what does normal look like? I don't know. People have asked me, are we going to keep wearing masks forever? And I like your mind, them. it's like, you know, there are many parts of this world where people wear masks during the winter when they go out in public because there's other things beyond COVID that are important, like a lot of respiratory viruses, like the cold virus and the flu virus. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think mask wearing in public during the winter months is probably going to stay with us for some time. And again, this is not a novel thing. Many countries of the world do this routinely. And so we may see our, um, our normality shift in that direction. But, um, you know, I, I, COVID will end at some point. Um, what that ending looks like, though, is still somewhat up for debate. Mm -hmm. Dr. Labos, I appreciate you coming on here today. I know you were a very busy man, you know, trying to help people um, get out of uh, uh, death-like situations. And then you're also very popular on the CTV, you got to do your things you need to do over there. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Project Fitness Podcast. You answered my questions in uh, great detail. And I hope that anyone who's listening here can kind of you know, dissect and take away some stuff and hopefully to better themselves, better their families, better people around them. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.